Chapters fifty three and fifty four of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Phase the Seventh. Fulfilment. Chapter fifty three. It was evening at Emminster Vicarage. The two customary candles were burning under their green shades in the vicar's study, but he had not been sitting there. Occasionally he came in, stirred the small fire which sufficed for the increasing mildness of the spring, and went out again, sometimes pausing at the front door, going on to the drawing-room, then returning again to the front door. It faced westward and though the gloom prevailed inside, there was still light enough without to see with distinctness. Mrs. Clare, who had been sitting in the drawing-room, followed him hither. "'Plenty of time yet,' said the vicar. "'He doesn't reach Chalk Newton till six, even if the train should be punctual, and ten miles of country road, Five of them in Crimacrock Lane are not jogged over in a hurry by our old horse. But he has done it in an hour with us, my dear. Years ago. Thus they passed the minutes, each well knowing that this was only a waste of breath, the one essential being simply to wait. At length there was a slight noise in the lane and the old pony-chaise appeared indeed outside the railings. They saw a light therefrom, a form which they affected to recognise, but would actually have passed by in the street without identifying, had he not got out of their carriage at the particular moment when a particular person was due. Mrs. Clare rushed through the dark passage to the door, and her husband came more slowly after her. The new arrival, who was just about to enter, saw their anxious faces in the doorway, and the gleam of the west in their spectacles, because they confronted the last rays of day, but they could only see his shape against the light. "'Oh, my boy, my boy, come home again at last,' said Mrs. Clare, who cared no more at that moment for the stains of heterodoxy which had caused all this separation than for the dust upon his clothes. What woman, indeed, among the most faithful adherents of the truth, believes the promises and threats of the word, in the sense in which she believes in her own children, or would not throw her theology to the wind, if weighted against their happiness? As soon as they reached the room where the candles were lighted, she looked at his face. "'Oh, it is not Angel, not my son!' the angel who went away, she cried in all the irony of sorrow, as she turned herself aside. His father, too, was shocked to see him, so reduced was that figure from its former contours by worry and the bad season that Clare had experienced in the climate to which he had so rashly hurried in his first aversion to the mockery of events at home. You could see the skeleton behind the man and almost the ghost behind the skeleton. He matched Crivelli's dead Christus, his sunken eye-pits were of morbid hue, and the light in his eyes had waned. 
the angular hollows and lines of his aged ancestors had succeeded to their reign in his face twenty years before their time. "'I was ill over there, you know,' he said. "'I'm all right now.' As if, however, to falsify this assertion, his leg seemed to give way, and he suddenly sat down to save himself from falling. It was only a slight attack of faintness, resulting from the tedious day's journey, and the excitement of arrival. "'Has any letter come for me to-day?' he asked. "'I received the last you sent on by the merest chance, and after considerable delay through being inland, or I might have come sooner.' It was from your wife, we supposed?" It was. Only one other had recently come. They had not sent it on to him, knowing he would start for home so soon. He hastily opened the letter produced, and was much disturbed to read in Tess's handwriting the sentiments expressed in her last hurried scrawl to him. Oh, why have you treated me so monstrously, Angel? I do not deserve it. I have thought it all over carefully, and I can never, never forgive you. You know that I did not intend to wrong you. Why have you so wronged me? You are cruel, cruel indeed. I will try to forget you. It is all injustice I have received at your hands. T. It is quite true," said Angel, throwing down the letter. Perhaps she will never be reconciled to me. Don't, Angel, be so anxious about a mere child of the soil," said his mother. Child of the soil? Well, we are all children of the soil. I wish she were so in the sense you mean. But let me now explain to you what I have never explained before that her father is a descendant in the male line of one of the oldest Norman houses, like a good many others who lead obscure agricultural lives in our villages, and are dubbed sons of the soil." He soon retired to bed, and the next morning, feeling exceedingly unwell, he remained in his room, pondering. The circumstances amid which he had left Tess were such that, though while on the south of the equator, and just in receipt of her loving epistle, it had seemed the easiest thing in the world to rush back into her arms the moment he chose to forgive her. Now that he had arrived, it was not so easy as it had seemed. She was passionate, and her present letter, showing that her estimate of him had changed under his delay, too justly changed, he sadly owned made him ask himself if it would be wise to confront her unannounced in the presence of her parents. Supposing that her love had indeed turned to dislike during the last weeks of separation, a sudden meeting might lead to bitter words. Clare therefore thought it would be best to prepare Tess and her family by sending a line to Marlott, announcing his return, and his hope that she was still living with them there as he had arranged for her to do when he left England. He dispatched the inquiry that very day, and before the week was out there came a short reply from Mrs. Durberfield, which did not remove his embarrassment, 
for it bore no address, though to his surprise it was not written from Marlott. Sir, I write these few lines to say that my daughter is away from me at present, and I am not sure when she will return, but I will let you know as soon as she do. I do not feel at liberty to tell you where she is temply biding. I should say that me and my family have left Marlott for some time. Yours, J. Derbyfield. It was such a relief to Clare to hear that Tess was at least apparently well, that her mother's stiff reticence as to her whereabouts did not long distress him. They were all angry with him, evidently. He would wait till Mrs. Durberfield could inform him of Tess's return, which her letter implied to be soon. He deserved no more. His had been a love which alters when it alteration finds. He had undergone some strange experiences in his absence. He had seen the virtual Faustina in the literal Cornelia, a spiritual Lucretia in a corporeal Phryne. He had thought of the woman taken and set in the midst as one deserving to be stoned, and of the wife of Uriah being made a queen, and he had asked himself why he had not judged a test constructively rather than biographically, by the will rather than by the deed. A day or two passed while he waited at his father's house for the promised second note from Joan Durbeyfield, and indirectly to recover a little more strength. The strength showed signs of coming back, but there was no sign of Joan's letter. Then he hunted up the old letter sent on to him in Brazil, which Tess had written from Flintcomb Ash, and re-read it. The sentences touched him now as much as when he had first perused them. "'I must cry to you in my trouble. I have no one else. I think I must die if you do not come soon, or tell me to come to you. Please, please, not to be just, only a little kind to me. If you would come I could die in your arms. I would be well content to do that, if so be you had forgiven me. If you will send me one little line, and say I am coming, I will bide on, Angel, oh, so cheerfully. Think how it do hurt my head not to see you ever, ever. Ah, if I could only make your dear heart ache one little minute of each day, as mine does every day and all day long. It might lead you to show pity to your poor lonely one. I would be content, I glad, to live with you as your servant, if I may not as your wife, so that I could only be near you, and get glimpses of you, and think of you as mine. I long for only one thing in heaven or earth, or under the earth, to meet you, my own dear. Come to me, come to me, and save me from what threatens me." Clare determined that he would not believe in her more recent and severer regard of him, but would go and find her immediately. He asked his father if she had applied for any money during his absence. His father returned a negative, 
and then for the first time it occurred to Angel that her pride had stood in her way, and that she had suffered privation. From his remarks his parents now gathered the real reason of the separation, and their Christianity was such that, reprobates being their especial care, the tenderness towards Tess which her blood, her simplicity, even her poverty, had not engendered, was instantly excited by her sin. Whilst he was hastily packing together a few articles for his journey, he glanced over a poor, plain missive, also lately come to hand, the one from Marian and Is Hewitt, beginning, "'Honoured sir, look to your wife if you do love her as much as she do love you,' and signed, from two well-wishers. End of chapter 53 Chapter 54 In a quarter of an hour Clare was leaving the house, whence his mother watched his thin figure as it disappeared into the street. He had declined to borrow his father's old mare, well knowing of its necessity to the household. He went to the inn, where he hired a trap, and could hardly wait during the harnessing. In a very few minutes after he was driving up the hill out of the town, which, three or four months earlier in the year, Tess had descended with such hopes, and ascended with such shattered purposes. Benville Lane soon stretched before him, its hedges and trees purple with buds. But he was looking at other things, and only recalled himself to the scene sufficiently to enable him to keep the way. In something less than an hour and a half he had skirted the south of the King's Hintock estates, and ascended to the untoward solitude of cross in hand, the unholy stone whereupon Tess had been compelled by Alec d'Urberville, in his whim of reformation, to swear the strange oath that she would never wilfully tempt him again. The pale and blasted nettle-stems of the preceding year even now lingered nakedly in the banks, young green nettles of the present spring growing from their roots. Hence he went along the verge of the upland, overhanging the other hintocks, and turning to the right plunged into the bracing calcareous region of Flintcombe Ash, the address from which she had written to him in one of her letters, and which he supposed to be the place of sojourn referred to by her mother. Here, of course, he did not find her. What added to his depression was the discovery that no Mrs. Clare had ever been heard of by the cottagers or by the farmer himself, though Tess was remembered well enough by her Christian name. His name she had obviously never used during her separation, and her dignified sense of their total severance was shown not much less by this abstention than by the hardships she had chosen to undergo, of which he now learnt for the first time, rather than apply to his father for more funds. From this place they told him Tess Durbeyfield had gone, without due notice, to the home of her parents on the other side of Blackmore, and it therefore became necessary to find Mrs. Durbeyfield. She had told him she was not now at Marlott but had been curiously reticent as to her actual address, and the only course was to go to Marlott and inquire for it. The farmer, who had been so churlish with Tess, 
was quite smooth-tongued to Clare, and lent him a horse and a man to drive him towards Marlott, the gig he had arrived in being sent back to Emminster, for the limit of a day's journey with that horse was reached. Clare would not accept the loan of the farmer's vehicle for a further distance than to the outskirts of the Vale, and sending it back with the man who had driven him, he put up at an inn, and next day entered on foot the region wherein was the spot of his dear Tess's birth. It was as yet too early in the year for much colour to appear in the gardens and foliage. The so-called spring was but winter, overlaid with a thin coat of greenness, and it was of a parcel with his expectations. The house in which Tess had passed the years of her childhood was now inhabited by another family who had never known her. The new residents were in the garden, taking as much interest in their own doings as if the homestead had never passed its primal time in conjunction with the histories of others, besides which the histories of these were but a tale told by an idiot. They walked about the garden's path with thoughts of their own concerns entirely uppermost, bringing their actions at every moment in jarring collision with the dim ghosts behind them, talking as though the time when Tess lived there were not one whit intenser in story than now. Even the spring-birds sang over their heads as if they thought there was nobody missing in particular. On inquiry of these precious innocents, to whom even the name of their predecessors was a failing memory, Clare learned that John Durbeyfield was dead, that his widow and children had left Marlott, declaring that they were going to live at Kingsbeer, but instead of doing so had gone on to another place they mentioned. By this time Clare abhorred the house for ceasing to contain Tess, and hastened back from its hated presence without once looking back. His way was by the field in which he had first beheld her at the dance. It was as bad as the house, even worse. He passed on through the churchyard, where, amongst the new headstones, he saw one of a somewhat superior design to the rest. The inscription ran thus, In memory of John Durbeyfield, rightly Durbeville, of the once powerful family of that name, and direct descendant through an illustrious line from Sir Pagan Durbeville, one of the Knights of the Conqueror, died March 10th, 18. Hmm. How are the mighty fallen! Some man, apparently the sexton, had observed Clare standing there, and drew nigh. "'Ah, sir, now, that's a man who didn't want to lie here, and wish to be carried to Kingsbeer, where his ancestors be.' "'And why didn't they respect his wish?' "'Oh, no money, bless your soul, sir. Why, there I wouldn't wish to say it everywhere, but even this headstone, for all the flourish wrote upon un, is not paid for." "'Ah! Who put it up?' The man told the name of a mason in the village, and on leaving the churchyard Clare called at the mason's house. He found that the statement was true, and paid the bill. This done, he turned in the direction of the migrants. The distance was too long for a walk, but Clare felt such a strong desire for isolation 
that at first he would neither hire a conveyance nor go to a circuitous line of railway by which he might eventually reach the place. At Chaston, however, he found he must hire, but the way was such that he did not enter Joan's place until about seven o'clock in the evening, having traversed a distance of over twenty miles since leaving Marlott. The village being small, he had little difficulty in finding Mrs. Durbeyfield's tenement, which was a house in a walled garden, remote from the main road, where she had stowed away her clumsy old furniture as best she could. It was plain that for some reason or other she had not wished him to visit her, and he felt his call to be somewhat of an intrusion. She came to the door herself, and the light from the evening sky fell upon her face. It was the first time that Clare had ever met her, but he was too preoccupied to observe more than she was still a handsome woman in the garb of a respectable widow. He was obliged to explain that he was Tess's husband and his object in coming here, and he did it awkwardly enough. "'I want to see her at once,' he added. "'You said you would write to me again, but you have not done so.' "'Because she've not come home,' said Joan. "'Do you know if she's well?' "'I don't. But you ought to, sir,' said she. I admit it. Where is she staying?" From the beginning of the interview Joan had disclosed her embarrassment by keeping her hand to the side of her cheek. "'I don't know exactly where she is staying,' she answered. "'She was, but—' "'Where was she?' "'Well, she is not there now.' In her evasiveness she paused again and the younger children had by this time crept to the door, where, pulling at his mother's skirts, the youngest murmured, "'Is this the gentleman who's going to marry Tess?' "'He has married her,' Joan whispered. "'Go inside.' Clare saw her efforts for reticence, and asked, "'Do you think Tess would wish me to try to find her? If not, of course, I don't think she would.' "'Are you—' Sure? I'm sure she wouldn't." He was turning away, and then he thought of Tess's tender letter. "'I am sure she would,' he retorted passionately. "'I know her better than you do.' "'That's very likely, sir, for I have never really known her.' "'Please tell me her address, Mrs. Durbeyfield, in kindness to a lonely, wretched man.' Tess's mother again restlessly swept her cheek with her vertical hand, and seeing that he suffered, she at last said, in a low voice, "'She is at Sandbourne.' "'Ah, where there? Sandbourne has become a large place, they say.' "'I don't know more particularly than I have said, Sandbourne. For myself I was never there.' It was apparent that Joan spoke the truth in this, and he pressed her no more. "'Are you in want of anything?' he said gently. "'No, sir,' she replied. "'We are fairly well provided for.' Without entering the house Clare turned away. There was a station three miles ahead, and, paying off his coachman, he walked thither. The last train to Sandbourne left shortly after, 
and it bore Clare on its wheels. End of chapter 54